0: I read an article this morning Mm -hmm. from uh, Smithsonian Magazine. It was basically saying how in the early 1900s in the U.S., (laughs) there was this shortage of, like, inexpensive, affordable meat. And some representative from Louisiana (laughs) was like, I I know the solution. Hippo ranches. (laughs) Oh, hippo ranching to provide a new source of cheap meat. We they were call- the <laughs> they were calling it low cow bacon.
1: It is hippos are very lean. Are they really? Uh-huh. Oh, I remember you They're saying like that. They're like almost all muscle.
0: Yeah, because they they sink. They run they across float. the bottom. Yeah. The <laughs> I don't know. It was it was In an interesting port. read. Hi, Anthony. Hello. Hi, I'm Alexis. Welcome back to Geographic. Anthony's back. I'm joined again by my big. Other.
1: Welcome to the show.
0: Welcome to the show. I I realized I didn't clarify on air why this episode was postponed. I said at the end of the Chompawat episode that I was going to do Chris McCandless, and then I didn't. Um, that's just because I was already really deep into the research and the notes and everything. And the thing is, the more that I read and learned about Chris's story and his family and his background, the more that it felt very it felt like i was kind of to do this episode would be to almost intrude i don't know i wanted to be really respectful telling his story a lot of the um a lot of the info i got came from a book written by his younger sister and reading that from the perspective of her me also being a little sister i could just the whole time i could just like picture you and i and i was i figured if you know god forbid something happened to you and someone was going to talk about it, I would I would maybe want to know. So I did actually uh, try to reach out to Kareem McCandless, or at least the people who represent her. Didn't get a reply, but I think <laughs> that the email I tried sending it to might just be old, um, or it's just not one that takes inquiries like mine. I was essentially just asking or just saying, hey, I plan to do an episode on Chris. Um, here's all my notes. Here's all the sources I'm using. Kind of just to get her her blessing I guess or you know just to let her know so I didn't get a uh, response (laughs) um and I was only going to do this episode once I got one but I think enough time is that was a few weeks ago and I just want to get into it so if you know someone who represents her or she herself contacts me and is like hey please take the episode down I'll do it but here it is for now Uh, I also want to just reiterate the new upload schedule this one's going to be a little late That's mostly my fault, because I do not plan ahead. I do plan ahead, but I don't plan well. Um, But episodes are to be released at the end of the week, every other week. So Thursday, every other week. So no episode next week, this episode this week. Um, And happy Pride Month.
1: Happy Pride Month.
0: Happy Pride Month. We're celebrating, I'm celebrating. This podcast is a safe space for any LGBTQ plus individuals. Polly, <laughs> thank you Polly,
1: <laughs>
0: Polly is also an ally, <laughs> but as a member of the community, I really want to let other members of the community know that, thanks Polly, that <laughs> this is um, a supportive and safe space. All that being said, there's a few things of nature news also happening, Um El Popo in Mexico is still erupting, I think. Popocatépetl, the big volcano. Uh, you've all probably seen the headlines at this point of orcas attacking boats. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, um, and it, it's it's happened on occasion, sure, but it seems like these are. <laughs>
1: uh, I, I read that it was a, it's one pod, right? And yeah. And they're like off the coast of Spain, mm-hmm. and they think that uh, a mother was struck by a, a like a, a prop strike, Aww. basically hit by a boat, and so she started attacking boats but now she's teaching like her siblings and, and her <laughs> calves how to uh, attack to attack boats <laughs> shit so. shit
0: i think i read one article that said that orca whales are capable of like experiencing trends which well is
1: yeah that's funny they're like one of the only other animals besides humans that undergo cultural evolution not that's just awesome genetic evolution
0: i mentioned that in the whale episode mm-hmm
1: <laughs> They're super cool. They are
0: super cool. All stations are cool, but that's insane. <laughs> in my notes, it literally says orcas attacking boats. Girl, what? <laughs> um, there's also a little spooky, mostly sad news. There's that uh, young kid, or I guess adult, eighteen year old who jumped off the cruise ship, uh, jumped off a cruise ship in the Bahamas. His name is Cameron Robbins.
1: That video was terrible. That
0: video is so scary. Um, there is video of it, and. Apparently, it happened on a dare, um, and in the video, you do see him over the side of the ship. People say that you can see um, a figure of something in the water with him. Bahamian authorities say that that area is known to be inhabited by sharks, so people think that maybe it was a shark. The horrible part it's, about it
1: is like the last thing that the last voice that that ever that guy ever heard was someone going bye bye, yeah. like, <laughs> like making Jesus. fun of him. Though I guess at that point you probably also assume that they're going to pull him out of the water. Yeah,
0: I don't think that any of them really took it as a serious yeah. threat.
1: Uh, a note to any listeners who are going on cruises, if you fall in the water off of a cruise, your chances of getting recovered are they're, they're like 10%. Like if you go in the water, you're not you're not coming chances back out. You're not coming
0: out. Yeah. Um, but his uh, he was I think that the cruise ship did linger in the area while they searched for him or kept an eye out for him. It was in the middle of the um, night. It was in the middle of the night, which makes it extra scary. Um well, and a ship
1: like that is not gonna turn on a di- n- it's not gonna no. stop and it's not gonna turn
0: around. No, exactly. Um and the Bahamian authorities and Coast Guards did call off the search and he's presumed dead. So it's very sad for his family and please don't I know i be
1: judicious with the dares that you be, take.
0: Yeah. The sea is not kind <laughs> to anybody um she's not to be trifled with so just anytime you're out on this out on the ocean on a boat always wear your life jacket make sure you practice man overboard drills make sure that you know how to get back onto a boat these are all really important things anyway all of that is all the nature news that i have now we can talk about what we're here to talk about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you have to read Into the Wild in high school as like required reading? Uh no. Oh, neither did I. <laughs> I know that it is part of reading curriculum for a lot of uh, a lot of different um, mm. English classes. No,
1: we read The Giving Tree. I was in remedial English. The Giving Tree. Yeah, we read The Giving Tree and like One Fish, Two Fish. So
0: <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So I'm going to start on September 6th of 1992. We're in Alaska. A couple from Anchorage is hiking in the area around Denali National Park. uh, And they come across a dilapidated bus in the remote wilderness. Already weird. Why is there a a bus out here? I'll get to it.
1: Is it just in the forest? Yeah. (laughs)
0: Um, First thing that they notice is there's a pretty terrible smell emanating from inside the bus Uh and a very strange note that's written on the back of the page torn from a Nikolai Gogol novel and it's pinned to the door and it reads attention possible visitors SOS I need your help I am injured near death and too weak to hike out of here I'm all alone this is no joke in the name of God please remain to save me I am out collecting berries close by and shall return this evening. Thank you, Chris McCandless.
1: It's a very polite save-me letter. Very
0: polite. Chris was, um... SOS. Yeah, and then after that it says, August, question mark, (laughs) because he didn't know what day it was. Help, please. Help, please. Thank you. Um, a group of three moose hunters who just happened to be in the area also stumbled across this at the same time. Um... They see this couple standing outside, and they uh, are—they have some trepidation about going to check out this bus because the implication that there is someone who's died in the bus is very apparent. They decide these moose hunters—they decide to investigate further. They look through the windows of the bus, and inside they see a 22-caliber rifle with a box of shells, a few books, some articles of clothing, a backpack, and a blue sleeping bag that clearly had something inside of it. One of the hunters reaches through the window shakes the sleeping bag. Definitely felt something inside, but says that whatever it was, wasn't very heavy. He got another glance from another side of the bus and saw a head sticking out of the side of the bag. Oh, man. This was the body of 24-year-old Chris McCandless. To understand how he got here, i got to tell you where he came from. Christopher Johnson McCandless was born on February 12, 1968, in El Segundo, California... Two parents, Walter McCandless and Wilhelmina Johnson. She went by Billy, so that's what I'm going to call her. Billy Johnson. Billy Johnson. Billy had, uh, she had dreams of being a dancer, but it didn't work out. She ended up taking a position as a secretary at Hughes Aircraft. It was there that she met Walt. Um, he was a very well-respected boss. And he was very quickly rising through the ranks there. He was her boss. He was eight years her senior and he was married to a woman named Marcia, with whom he had three kids and a fourth was on the way. Um, Their names by the way are Sam, Stacy, Shauna, and Shelly. Shelly is the one who's on the way. So they... So I'm trying to think about how to put it delicately. Walt and Billy are still very much alive and they have suffered a tremendous loss for which I feel a lot of sympathy for them. That being said, the things I'm about to tell you about their home life are um, disturbing, to say the least. Um, the things that I'm going to tell you about Chris's home life um, with his parents and everything about his parents and that uh, what he experienced growing up comes from Corrine McCandless's book, again, his younger sister. Um, and I'm going to put a trigger warning for domestic violence on the front end of that when I really start to get into it because it's some very heavy stuff. But everything that I'm going to tell you about Walt and Billy comes from her accounts. Um, It's all public record. It's nothing that I'm just making up. I swear. (laughs) Please, don't come for me. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, shortly after Walt met Billy, the two of them began a relationship. Again, Walt is still married. Walter. Walter. Still married. Eight years older than her and her boss. So, I already do not like the dynamic happening here. He would actually go on to have two children with her again while he was still married. These nice. were Chris and Corrine. Uh and he had another two with Marsha at the same time. Their names are Shannon and Quinn. So if you're keeping track the but he order had
1: four with Oh, four, two and then two? F- yeah.
0: So brother. Yeah. <laughs> Eight kids total. Uh Chris had six half siblings and one full sibling. So the order of the children as they were born is Sam Stacy Shauna Shelley Shannon Chris Quinn and Corrine. Quinn being in the middle between quiz, uh, quiz. <laughs> between quiz and Queen. between <laughs> between Chris and Corrine. that comes up later and presents kind of an issue for this uh, mm-hmm. family write this
1: down there will be a quiz at the end yes <laughs> you will be expected to remember the order
0: you will it's not multiple choice it's all written response oh be ready <laughs> So Walt initially split his time between the two families, Marsha with their six children and Billy with their two. And he was in and they out. Did they know
1: about each other?
0: Uh, Marsh yes. <laughs> Billy Wild. very much did. Marsha learned a little later on, and it's it just gets wilder from here. He, he was essentially living a bigamist fantasy at this point. Yeah. Um, because his event, Corrine says in her book that she thinks Walt's ultimate goal here was to have... Both children or both families all living together under the same roof. Hmm. Um, There was actually one incident where it's after uh, he said it's after Marsha learns about his affair with Billy and he is just like fully out out in the open with it. And he's he's like talking right in front of her about the future he sees of all of them living together And he's saying how they both compliment each other. He's like, John Smith. You make a better meatloaf, but she makes a better (laughs) sauce. (laughs) He says that to her and she looks at him and she goes, gee, Walt, I didn't know you were a fundamentalist Mormon. (laughs) So very interesting. Marsha found out about Billy because she, uh, found Billy's ID in one of Walt's jackets while she was doing laundry. She still went on to, I shouldn't, they're still around. It's yes. Uh, she confronted him to which he reacted with hostility the deflection of it all. That tends to happen with these kinds of things where you find something out and then they freak out. No, you. Yeah. <laughs> or you're like, you find something, they're like, well, why were you even, you know, uh uh-huh. whatever, whatever. Why were you looking for it? Whatever.
1: Doesn't matter why. I found I it. I found it. <laughs> it's
0: here. Let's talk about that. <laughs> now the whole time Walt was telling Billy that he was trying to get a divorce from Marcia, but she was the one who wouldn't give him one when reality She was the one who very much wanted a divorce, and he was never seeking one. Hmm. In his world, he wanted his cake and to eat it, too. He wanted Billy, and he wanted Marsha. The extra fucked up part about this is that as the families got to know each other, all the kids grew up together. That's not the fucked up part. It's the fact that Marsha would actually sometimes look after Chris— and her children would visit Walt and Billy's house, so all the kids were play ma- uh, playmates. But they were likely unaware of how or why. At the very least, the younger ones, um, Chris, at least doesn't Sounds find out to dysfunctional. Older. Extremely dysfunctional. So poor Marcia has to look after the children of, uh, or the child of the woman her husband cheated on her on, cheated on her with. But let me tell you, Marsha is a saint. She was so kind to Chris and Corrine. She always welcomed them in their home. Um, after she does leave Walt, all of her children have this very gracious attitude. I, there was one point um, where Corrine was talking to one of her half-sisters, and she says something like, "You know, how could you guys be so forgiving and understanding about everything that's happened? And she says, well, look who raised us, meaning Marsha.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So. Marsha's a superstar. Justice for Marsha. And I'm mentioning this next part just because it drove me insane. So Walt and Marsha's last child together, Quinn. He was born in 1969, a year after Chris was born. Billy found out, and still being under the impression that Walt was actively seeking a divorce from his wife, became furious with him. So she sent Chris and Corrine to stay with their grandparents in Michigan for a while. Billy eventually does forgive, forgive Walt. Because he insists that Quinn wasn't his, <laughs> and she believed him. <laughs> Corrine, in her book, says she refers to Quinn as being "quote unquote" incriminating evidence of their affair. This uh, I should not have mentioned earlier. Um, they're a church-going family. They're not. I don't want to say like over overly religious, but they are. You know, very traditional. Practicing mm-hmm. Christians. Uh, e- they go to Methodist church. So Christians. Christian. Christian. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the religions. It's Protestant. Mm. Um, so appearances are a very big thing for them as well to keep up this, Mm. you know, very pure image of their family. (laughs) Uh,
1: still waters run deep.
0: Yeah. Sometimes Billy and Walt would claim that one or more of their children were not their biological offspring to create a more believable time timeline for Quinn to fit into, which it's one thing if you want to cheat. Okay. That's already, it's shitty in itself. Don't make your kids complicit in this. And just the fact that they're not owning up to their shit and being like, oh, well, he's not mine. Marcia had him with someone else. I'm not the one. It it makes me, it's the same thing with, like, usually it's fathers who will, like, leave a family and start a new family somewhere else and completely just cast off the old one. It's giving that vibe. And it ju- it just drives me nuts because that's so the bad. Secret second life. It is. It's just so bad for a kid to grow up with that, though. Being, you know.
1: Yeah, but I, I don't think that? that someone that's going to do that is like they're not thinking about anybody outside no, of themselves. They're absolutely so not. So what yeah. do you what do you really expect? No,
0: uh, Walt and Billy are are uh,
1: good guy. Walter.
0: Yeah, very much not thinking about anybody else but themselves. Marsha would eventually divorce Walt in 1972 when Chris was only four and Corrine was one. She sold the house, took the kids, got the hell out of there and moved to Colorado. A Where pe- were they? Um, they were in, they were in California. Huh. Uh, Billy No wonder
1: they were so amoral. <laughs>
0: <laughs> California. Mm-hmm. Billy and Walt married about three years later when Corrine was four and Chris was seven. Uh, Walt got a job offer from NASA that made them move uh, Made move the family to Annandale, Virginia. Um, Billy and Walt would actually go on to start a consulting firm together, which was very successful, so good for them, I guess. I want to take a second to talk about Corrine as well, um, just because she is a central figure in this story and just a really remarkable person in her own right, in my opinion. Um, growing up, Corrine was Chris's best friend, his confidant, one of their siblings referred to them as soulmates. These two were extremely close. And when you hear what they both went through growing up, you'll probably understand why. She was born in July 1971, making her three years younger than Chris. Just like you and me. In her book, when she describes uh, a period in time where Chris leaves for college and she's left in the house with just her parents for a while, it quite genuinely stressed me out. Because Chris was her protector during this time. And now she didn't have anybody and she's alone with these people. And it was very, very tough to read some of the stuff she had to say that she endured. Um, one of, something that she notes is she says she almost couldn't imagine her life at home without Chris there. Her life was still very tumultuous even after leaving her parents' house. She endured two abusive marriages, which tends to happen when you come from an abusive household. Right. The cycle. Um financial and business struggles she actually created her own i think it was an automotive business in 19 she liked cars and stuff um and she pretty much established that all on her own she had went through a miscarriage and of course the loss of her um, brother chris and everything that came in the wake of that so giving Kareen some credit because again i read her book and it it was there were times where i had to put it down because it was just too intense and the emotion was so real And it just, it was very, it's a very good book. I really recommend you go read it. What's the name of the book? The Wild Truth. And it's called that for a reason. I will talk about that at the end. So I'm putting the trigger warning for domestic violence here. Because I am going to talk about that. Um, Kareen describes a physically and uh, and mentally abusive upbringing for both her and Chris. Alcohol was a big factor here. Um, walt was emotionally mentally and physically abusive to both of his wives and his children there was actually an incident um, before Marsha divorced him in which walt had assaulted her so violently that their 13 year old son Sam had to call the police and they didn't do much when they showed up go figure yeah tends to happen because <laughs> they are not trained domestic violent uh, domestic dispute experts but you know
1: but no, know, many times they just make it worse. Yeah, they
0: usually do. Um, another point: when he was with Marsha, he reportedly broke one of her vertebrae during a fight. Jesus Christ! Yeah, not Walt's. I'm going to say it: Walt's not a good guy.
1: Whoa! <laughs> that's a that's a flaming hot, a take, hot take right <laughs> there.
0: He would get mad at Billy and tell her she was stupid and she was nothing without him. Um, Kareen's book opens with an anecdote of her father getting violent with Billy, and Billy yells for the two kids. She says, Come see what your father's doing to me. To which Walt would say, Kids, come in here. See what your mother is making me do.
1: Oh, yeah. That's classic. This is
0: bad. This is very bad. After one particular violent fight between Walt and Billy, she hugged Chris and Corrine, and she told them, I'm sorry, kids, but when I got pregnant with Chris, I got stuck with your father. Can you... Imagine the weight that put on Chris. Yeah, no kidding. As a little boy, saying he felt responsible for all of this, yeah. for making their life hell, he felt he was the reason that they were all suffering, and he
1: just by virtue of being born.
0: Yeah, he didn't do any. His only crime was being born. And Corrine does say that in her book that she thinks that this this undue guilt really, really was a big factor in Chris's life since he was a little boy. Billy would threaten divorce. Walt would tell her he he could make sure she couldn't get a job and she couldn't take care of the kids without him, which is financial abuse. Billy was constantly telling the kids that she was divorcing Walt and even took them house hunting a lot of times, but she never really followed through with it. They're still married today, by the way. (laughs) Uh, Chris and Corrine were constantly caught up in their parents' fights, and they would become actively involved as they got older. Chris would be the one to admonish his parents. Corrine would kind of try to de-escalate things between them. As she puts it, quote, I was the marriage counselor. Chris was the divorce attorney.
1: Good on you, Chris.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So these two kids really, you know, they were as much a part of their parents' struggles as their parents themselves were in all the worst ways. When it came to Chris himself, outside of the home, he did very well in school. He excelled in track, um... He said this was kind of a, was, it was kind of a release for him in a way. It was a way for him to channel his anger and to calm his mind. Um, <laughs> I
1: started running.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Literally. He actually, so I'm, I'm going to, I'll get into it. Chris was known as like an intense person mm. um, and he became track coach and something that he would tell his team was to imagine that they were running from all the evil and darkness of the world pretty heavy track. Pretty coach. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it worked. They were like, yeah, he would push us but we loved it. So <laughs> Chris is yeah. Um he was innately adventurous and he. going to run
1: the devil out he,
0: of you. <laughs> <laughs> um but he'd always been very adventurous and he normally found solace and peace in nature far from his home life. He loved family camping trips cause they would do that. He said that was mm. the, um, or Corrine said that was the only time that her parents wouldn't fight was on these camping trips. They mm. would go out in the Shenandoah with all the siblings. And it was, those are some of the only fond memories that Corrine really has of her childhood. Um, she says that they would often her and Chris would walk the woods sometimes. He was always looking for new plants and animals to point out. Um, he would always like to point out the ones he already recognized. She said that he would, for lack of a better word, narrate sceneries, which she likens to something like captioning a National Geographic magazine's photos. <laughs> um he also loved the works of Jack London when he was younger. He would go on to read, you know. Henry David Thoreau, nature was already very much from a young age, Chris's escape. After he graduated college, he had plans to attend Emory University in Georgia, but he wanted to go on a fully unplanned solo trip over the summer after he graduated from high school. Walt was not happy. (laughs) He thought this was an aimless adventure that Chris was just, you know, wasting his time on. I don't
1: think Walt's ever been happy.
0: I don't think he has either. (laughs) And he demanded Chris write up an itinerary for him, <laughs> which Chris refused to provide. <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 um, Control freak much.
0: Yeah. And part of me can't blame him if, you know, my kid was like, yeah, I'm just going to drive. I would also be like, okay, at least tell me where you are.
1: <laughs> well, sure. At
0: least tell me where you're going. That's I wouldn't be like, give me a handwritten... But
1: you're not an abusive psychopath.
0: That's true. <laughs> so... Chris did end up leaving on his trip. He left in his beloved yellow Datsun and headed west. There he spent the next few weeks traveling along the Pacific coast, trekking through the Mojave and bringing food to people. What he, a guy. I know, really cool. And he seemed like he really had the time of his life out there. Um, when he came back, Corrine, it's really sweet, in the book she like sees his car in the driveway and she's like, Chris is home and runs inside to find him and he's like passed out on the couch because he had been or in his bed, because he had been traveling Mm. along the coast for weeks. Um, But after he returned, she had noticed a change in Chris's behavior. Um, He was very, he suddenly became kind of more uh, reserved, kind of retreated more into himself, which was not like him. And this happened because during that trip, Chris returned to their old neighborhood in El Segundo, and he began asking neighbors about his family. And it's then that he learned the truth of Billy and Walt's deception. He revealed all this years later in a letter to Corrine, and he explained that Marsha and Walt's split was due to his affair with Billy, and that he and Corrine had been born out of wedlock. And the thing with Chris, and something that Corrine reiterates over and over again in her book, it's the foundation of her book, it's why she wrote it, it's because Chris had this divine reverence for the truth he held honesty as like a sacred virtue. He thought that the truth should conquer everything. She, um, there was an anecdote where she says once they were like sitting by the side of a stream or something. And he looked at her and he said, you know, nature may be cruel, Corinne, but it never lies to you or something like that. Damn. Damn. So he, you know, so obviously this is something that affected him a lot, not just because, you know, finding out, oh, I'm a product of wedlock and sure. an affair, but also because they had been they had lied to him. That's well, it's
1: not surprising that you would come to hold that as hold honesty as a virtue if you're raised by a pair of, you know, pathological liars. Yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. So it's yeah. It makes a lot of sense. That was the thing that really bothered him the most was the deception, the hypocrisy. I mentioned a little bit ago that um Chris is described as always having this intensity about him, which I think translates into him being someone who was very affected by things, who felt things deeply. He didn't do or feel anything in moderation. Um, He held himself to very high standards and he was constantly pushing himself. So someone looking from the outside just saw someone who obviously was very ambitious and very keen to prove something to themselves few examples are his high school relationship uh, with this girl, Julie. Um, he was very serious about her. And when she broke up with him, because she wasn't quite on the same level that he was, yeah. it like, it crushed him. Obviously the thing I mentioned with track, uh, his outdoorsmanship. Again, he was always trying to push himself to do more, to go farther. And then of course there came Corrine and his protectiveness over her and the fear he had of leaving her alone when he went to college. There was one story where um, a friend of his was, like, fucking with him. And he was like, yeah, after you leave for college, I'm going to date your sister. And Chris was just like, all right, dude, shut up. (laughs) But he, like, kept going on about it. And he pulled over. He was driving. Chris was driving him. And he pulled over. And he's like, don't talk about my sister like that. Get out of my car. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. And I mention all this because one of the big things with this story is why did Chris do this? Why would he do this to his family? Corrine's book came out in 2013. Uh, John Krakauer's original article about him was written in 1993. Into the Wild came out in 1996. And then the movie came out in 2007, I think. in none of these it are the details of his upbringing and the abuse he went through ever really fleshed out. There are some hints to it, but it's more it seems more like his parents were just overbearing is the sense that you get from reading about reading the book and reading the article. All of this is omitted because John Krakauer did interview Chris's family. He interviewed Walton, Billy and Corrine. Corrine was the one who told him everything, mm-hmm. but she said, I don't want to hurt my parents and I think that they can still change. So I don't want this coming out and this being like a big thing. Right. So she, she held on to that hope for a long time that they would, change and unfortunately it didn't happen but they after all this stuff with Chris they really rode this wave of like you know oh we love him so much despite what he did to us kind of thing Uh, and that really bothered Corrine so much to the point that she ended up writing this book where she was like well I gave them a chance here's the truth that's where the wild truth comes from the wild truth
1: how can we turn this around and make it about us
0: how can we turn this around and make us the victims here um, but a lot of people really do admonish Chris for, you know, he was so selfish for doing this to his family. He knew it would hurt them, but I, there's very good reasons why he did this. In one of his letters to Corrine, he says that Walt and Billy are just totally beyond hope. And he says that there is no way to ever bring them back into reality. <laughs> All of the lies were, he said, <laughs> over 20 years of lies and meaningless games have reduced them into a permanent state of psychotic insanity. Uh, he was very minimal contact with them even before he left. And he pretty much just didn't want anything to do with them. He, I think went not fully no contact with them after he left for college, but he was not, um, he didn't tell them when he left and he didn't tell them Mm -hmm. anything at all when they, where he went after he left. Um, he ended up writing a long letter detailing how to his parents, detailing how their lies and abuse and and hypocrisy really affected him and his sister. And how the vitriolic environment in their household left them both with this unresolved trauma, and now he had entirely lost all respect he ever had for either of them. He sent this because just like Corrine, this was something of an olive branch to try to see try to get them to see the error of their ways. Wow. And Walton and Billy read this letter and they were like, Oh my gosh, Chris is right. We've been
1: Yeah, sure. We've <laughs> Sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we re- we reflected <laughs> And we are so sorry. <laughs> that didn't happen. They largely ignored the letter. They only uh, <laughs> Why is this trash. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. They God. they clearly read it though, because uh Ay-ay-ay. they they briefly mentioned or referred to it in a postcard to Chris they sent to him from a ski trip that they were on. In this postcard it says, Thanks for your letters, saving them for your children to read one day. Wow. Everything with these people is just ammunition. It's nuts. It's crazy. So in another letter he wrote to Corrine, he really makes the extent of his uh, contempt for his parents known. He says, quote, for a few months after graduation, I'm going to let them think that they are right. I'm going to let them think that I'm coming around to see their side of things and that our relationship is stabilizing. And then, once the time is right, with one abrupt, swift action, I'm going to completely knock them out of my life. I'm going to divorce them as my parents. I will be through with them once and for all, forever. So, I think it's safe to say... uh, (laughs) safe to say that uh, we know the reason why Chris left. (laughs) Now, when it comes to his the actual leaving, the actual story as we know it. For his initial uh, departure, we have to go back to when he graduated. He graduated from Emory with honors as a history anthropology major in May of 1990, which is a sleigh. He had a lot of interest in actually, um, uh, like South African politics and traveling to South Africa to help, uh, solve the apartheid crisis, that whole situation going on, which for those of you who don't know, apartheid was a, uh, policy of racial segregation that was in place in South Africa up until the 19-fucking-90s, so.
1: Shouts out to Nelson Mandela. Shouts
0: out to Nelson. During Chris's graduation dinner, Chris spoke vaguely about his future plans, Corrine said he didn't want to be hypocritical and completely lie to his parents, but he avoided any questions about specifics. All that he really said was like, yeah, I'm thinking about law school. Like, <laughs> didn't say I'm going, but I'm, mm-hmm. about I'm it. thinking about it. Yeah. Um, Corrine she knew his real plan, which was no plan. And that's how Chris liked it. What Corrine didn't know, or she couldn't have known, was that this was the last time she would ever see her brother. Aww. I know. In May 1990, Chris drained his college fund, which was, I think, like $26,000 or something. He wrote a check for $24,000 addressed to the Oxford Famine Relief Fund, or Oxfam, as most people know them, which is a charity organization dedicated to alleviating global poverty. what a guy. I know. And without telling... everything that I have. (laughs) everything I have. I literally don't want it anymore. (laughs) You can have it.
1: Go do something good with it.
0: Yeah. Without telling anybody where he was headed, or even that he was leaving... Chris vacated his Georgia apartment, packed his Datsun with all his belongings, and began driving west with no plan, no parents, and no baggage. <laughs> Things get off to a swimming start because in July 1990, his beloved Datsun was caught in a flash flood near Lake Mead and broke down. Nice. <laughs> he abandons the car in somewhere called Detrital Wash in Arizona. What a name. What's it called? Detrital Wash. Oh,
1: That's a town?
0: <laughs> I think so. I assume. I've never heard of it. Probably because it's called Detrital Wash.
1: It's in Arizona. It, it would be tracks. in Arizona
0: gotta take a shot at the zonies (laughs) so after the car broke down this encouraged him to bury most of his possessions that he had and he burned his uh remaining 160 dollars in cash that he had with him
1: like literally burnt it
0: burned it (laughs) threw it on the ground and burned it which is so funny because normally when your car breaks down you're like oh fuck but chris was like Sweet.
1: He's living the minimalist he dream. Psyched. He sure is. One less thing to worry about. Yeah,
0: he did leave a note with the car that said, quote, this piece of shit has been abandoned. <laughs> Whoever can get it out of here can have it. <laughs> Some of his belongings he did leave behind in the car. Uh, he left the keys, obviously.
1: That's uh, littering,
0: Chris. <laughs> it's, come on, Chris. I was rooting for you, but... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> now uh, I have my reservations. <laughs> But inside he left, uh, the keys, obviously a sauce saucepan or excuse me, saucepan. People get mad sometimes when you don't say, don't say saucepan. Do they really? I don't know. Okay. Saucepan. I hear, (laughs) I think binging with Babish. Get mad. I think Babish says saucepan. So I trust him. Uh, there was also a guitar. I should have mentioned too, Chris was, uh, he had a pretty good singing voice according to the people who knew him. So a little musician. It was also $4.93 in change, a new electric razor, and a 25 pound bag of rice. Huh. Park Rangers managed to jumpstart the car, and it was taken into police custody. What timing? <laughs> um, That'd be an ambulance. Oh, NVM. <laughs> um, but it was taken into police custody. Custody? Taken <laughs> 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 into police custody. It was taken into police custody and apparently used as an undercover vehicle for drug busts. Well, I guess the little
1: nondescript Dotson would, yeah. would, would be pretty... Uh, Everything's would got belt. a
0: story. Uh, after that, he ended well, up... Yeah. Chris ended up taking a job with a guy called Crazy Ernie, <laughs> who, uh, uh, funny enough, turned out to be a con artist. <laughs>
1: Get out of town. <laughs> Crazy Ernie? With a name no like way.
0: that? No uh, He would take advantage oh, yeah, yeah, of... Uh, he would take advantage of um, tramps like Chris, who were passing tramps. through. That's what they called themselves. Okay. <laughs> I was trying to think about how to say it. Tramps is what that's what Chris called himself. He ended up going by the name Alexander Supertramp. It was inspired by a book.
1: Super tramp, right Yeah, on.
0: I know. It's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, it was inspired by a inspired inspired by a book titled The Life I Am <laughs> It was inspired by a book titled The Life of a Super Tramp by William H. Davies. Chris was a big reader so a tramp it's just you know i can tell
1: he's he's like in his letters he's a you know, hell of a linguist
0: mm-hmm. he is he's a really great writer a lot of his writings um that he wrote during his journeys are like kind of melodramatic but mm. i like it um so yeah tramp is just you know someone who, who travels basically a drifter a vagabond a rambler a dog. <laughs> <laughs> that too that uh, he would take advantage of tramps like Chris who were passing through, who needed the work, and he just wouldn't pay them. So Chris was like, all right. When he learned about uh, Ernie's racket, stole a fucking bike from him and <laughs> left. <laughs> Good for Chris. He would travel throughout the western U.S. for the next uh, two months via hitchhiking, train hopping, following established trails. It was during this time again that he started going by the name Alexander Super Tramp. And he also started keeping a journal chronicling his travels. He he would introduce himself as Alex to people he would meet. This also uh, made it harder for his parents or anyone to track him, which was fine with him. In August, he reached Northern California, and he hitched a ride with a woman named Jan Burrs and her boyfriend, Bob. They were what are called uh, rubber tramps, which is just vagabonds in a car. Jan was... yeah. Jan was close in age to Billy, and Chris was actually close in age to Jan's own son, who was somewhere out in the world at that point. Um, so sh- the two of them developed a close bond, um, and he would actually write to her often after he split with he split off from them. He he tended to keep in contact actually with people after leaving, except for his parents, which is really something it says a lot. In September of 1990, he reached Montana. It was here he became acquainted with um, a guy named Wayne Westerberg. What? <laughs> what? Why are you laughing? I don't know. It's just Westerberg. such
1: like a cartoon name. Like some like, totally cartoon cowboy guy it gets living in more, 2005.
0: It gets more cartoonish because he runs like a grain elevator out yeah. in the middle of fucking like nowhere. Doug
1: Dimidon, <laughs> like.
0: so, yeah, Wayne Westerberg, who I think is played by Vince Vaughn in the movie. Um, But he picked up Chris on a highway east of Cut Bank, which I had to look up. It's in northern Montana. Mm -hmm. And he gave him a ride. Chris introduced himself as Alex. Uh, One source says that he introduced himself as Alex McCandless. Another said Alex Supertramp. So, I don't know. Either way, I'm Alex. He left a good impression on Wayne, apparently, because um, he told him to look him up if he ever found himself in Carthage, South Dakota, which he did. Carthage? Yeah. I was like... <laughs> Car- Carthage, South Dakota. Tunisia? <laughs> uh, it was also during this time that uh, Walt and Billy hired a private investigator to track Chris down after having not heard from him since June. They ended up losing his trail somewhere in Northern California. Um,
1: take a hint.
0: Take a hint. He doesn't want to talk to you anymore. <laughs> about two weeks after meeting Wayne, Chris and en- didn't end up blowing into Carthage. Uh, Wayne gave him a job at the grain elevator he owned and let him stay in his house. Wayne would actually end up becoming one of Chris's closest friends, and he later described Chris as a hard worker, entirely honest, intelligent, and someone who set high standards for himself. So, a lot of familiar things that people have said about Chris. He ended up working for Wayne for the next couple weeks until uh, old Wayne got caught up in some kind of legal trouble and ended up, ended up getting arrested. <laughs> so Chris left Carthage when that happened. In November, he received a postcard from Phoenix that was signed by Chris, well, Alex. Uh, he complains that the money he got from his time working with Wayne had made tramping too easy. <laughs> he said my days were more exciting when what i was an
1: interesting guy
0: no he said my days were more exciting when i was penniless and had to forage around for my next meal i decided that i'm going to live this life for some time to come the freedom and simple beauty of it is just too good to pass up what an interesting guy one day i'll get back to you wayne and repay some of your kindness
1: like poverty yeah. by choice that's so wild and
0: he's like he's doing great with it too He's not like super duper struggling. He's in, He seems like he's in good spirits the whole time. He mm. does. He keeps this up for two years and never once gets disillusioned <laughs> with it.
1: <laughs> the conservative dream. Pull yourself <laughs> up by your bootstraps, you? bucko.
0: Exactly.
1: Haven't you ever heard of Chris McCandless? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, Chris had sent that letter in October. By the time Wayne read it, Chris was on his way to. Do you want to take a guess where Chris was on his way to? Just shot in the dark
1: timbuktu no mm.
0: <laughs> mexico <laughs> chris was on the way to mexico he bought a second-hand aluminum canoe from some guy i guess when he was out near like havasu and he paddled down the colorado river crossed right into mexico via via a spillway and ended up in the gulf of california around early 1990. Um, he, he was an illegal immigrant. He sure was. He endured some rough weather in the Gulf and he was like, mm, maybe the, the sea isn't for me. In his little tin canoe. <laughs> his little secondhand tin canoe. Are you kidding me? I wouldn't trust that thing to, I... for anything. Um, so he ended up heading North again on January 16th, about 1991. He abandoned the canoe in the Gulf of Santa Clara. He's just leaving his shit everywhere. Uh-huh.
1: Not cool. Chris, <laughs> no.
0: um, uh, and he ended up walking north towards the border. Now, this next thing, when I read it, I was like, no fucking way. But then I remembered that this is 1991, pre-9-11. Mm. Uh, he was apprehended by immigration at the border. He had no ID, and he was carrying a pistol with him. And he told them, well, I'm just kind of a drifter. Right? I Just kind of go place to place. And they were like, all right, come on in. <laughs> <laughs> they did take his gun, though. So yeah. uh, you can't do that today. <laughs> if anyone is wondering why I'm surprised. Um, it should also be noted that throughout this entire period, he had subsisted entirely on a five pound bag of rice and fish that he would catch.
1: Do you had to be pretty scrawny?
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. So now he spent the next couple months kind of bouncing around the Southwest from San Diego to Houston, to Palm Springs, to Vegas. He was just kind of tramping through all these places. Um, the time period is a little hard to nail down here, but at some point between May and December of 1991, I know it's a big chunk of time. Uh, At some point, he reached Bullhead City, Arizona, and he actually almost ended up settling there. He got a job at a fast food joint. He bought a—it was either a trailer or a tent. Joint. Yeah. What? What do you want me to say? A fast food restaurant. Um, But he bought a trailer or a tent. It was said it was different things, different sources. Uh, He started going by his name again, by Chris McCandless again. And he sent a letter to Wayne saying that he liked Bullhead City. And he was considering giving up tramping. But in the same letter, he says that he tends to get itchy feet when spring comes around. Must Uh, be allergies. (laughs) (laughs) He ends up sending a postcard to Jan, um, Burris the rubber tramp, Mm -hmm. with a return address on it. Which she's stoked for, because he's never done that before. And she makes plans to go visit him in Arizona. His... Itchy feet went out, and he ends up leaving Bullhead City, but he actually intercepts her and her boyfriend in California along the way. He joins them as they travel to Slab City, which is in California. I didn't know it was near Salvation Mountain either. I looked it up. It's, like, right next to it. It's crazy. Um, Slab City is famously a gathering place for, like, drifters, tramps, nomads, other such homeless people. Its wiki page describes it as... Quote, an alternate, alternative lifestyle community. Huh. Very interesting. Some people think that it, it's lawless, like it has no laws. It's just unincorporated. There's still laws there. You can't, like, you know, shoot someone there and it's fine. He stays with her for a while. Um, he helps her with selling books there for a time. But I should mention, or should have mentioned earlier, this entire time he's been traveling, his ultimate goal has been Alaska. He really, really wants to get to Alaska and live off the land there for a time. He calls it his great Alaskan odyssey. And the entire time that he's uh, he's with Jan, he's thinking about it, he's talking about it, and he's ready to do it. So the visions of him heading there are what encourages him, encourages him to leave. On his way there, he camps out near Salton Sea, and he gets picked up by a man named Ronald Franz. Uh, Franz is a, a pretty significant figure in Chris's life at this point. He was an 80-year-old Vietnam vet and a recovered alcoholic. Uh, he had lost his wife and child while he was overseas, and he immediately took to Chris as like a surrogate son almost. Mm-hmm. Um, he buys Chris food, and he listens to his stories and philosophies. He also teaches him some, uh, teaches him some leather working. So they develop a pretty close bond. Um, Chris had plans to actually move on to Carthage before making for Alaska in April, But Ron urged Chris to consider letting him legally adopt him as his grandson. Chris didn't give him a definitive answer. He just told Ron that they would talk about it when he returned from Alaska. Uh, As Krakauer puts it in his first article he wrote about Chris, he said, quote, he had again evaded the impending threat of human intimacy. (laughs) Same. Same, Chris. Ron later received a letter from Chris in which he en- uh, encouraged Ron to give up his secure, sedentary lifestyle and live more like he did. And Ron actually took him up on his advice. He stored all of his possessions away and bought a GMC to travel. In. <laughs> and well, You're 80 years yeah, old. I, you're 80. What else, what else is there? So Chris was back in Carthage around February, working for Wayne again, before leaving for Alaska on April 15th he sent wayne after he left he sent him a now famous polar bear postcard that a lot of people have seen um i think a lot of people also mistake this for being his last words just because of how it's written but it says greetings from fairbanks this is the last you shall hear from me wayne arrived here two days ago it was very difficult to catch rides in the yukon territory but i finally got here please return all mail i received to the sender it might be a very long time before i return south if this adventure proves fatal and you don't ever hear from me again, I want you to know you're a great man. Aww. I now walk into the wild. This is where the title of the book, the book comes from. some great writer. He he wrote the wrong your. <laughs> <Did> he <laughs> I want to know you're a great man. Just kidding. I'm just kidding, Chris this would be the last that Wayne would ever hear from Chris uh, until his body was discovered. Now, what he says, that line about, you know, if this proves fatal, a lot of people read that and think that this implies some kind of suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. Krakauer, from his analysis of Chris, doesn't think that this is the case. Sounds like he was
1: just being realistic. Mm. He knew what he was getting into. Yeah,
0: it's the Alaskan. He's a smart (laughs) guy. Yeah, clearly. He's educated. He's been around the block. He knows what's up. But, yeah, I don't think that... That's something a lot of people, you know, like to say about Chris is that, oh, he went there to die. I don't think so. Uh, yeah, much? There's better ways. Yeah. <laughs> there's easier ways. I, I
1: didn't I didn't want to yeah. go that far, but yeah. <laughs> I know
0: what you're saying. Um, it's like that part in Jurassic Park, too, when he's telling the story of the guy who climbed Everest. They're like, why'd you go up there to die? He's like, I didn't go up there to die. I went up there to live. <laughs> uh, Chris reached Fairbanks 10 days after he left Carthage on the 25th having hitchhiked and walked the entire way. Wayne actually offered to buy him a plane ticket to Alaska, but Chris declined. He's, he said doesn't that, seem
1: like the kind of guy who would want to take a plane.
0: Yeah. He said that flying would be cheating, so yeah, he didn't want exactly. to do that. He hitched a ride... What an interesting yeah, guy. Yeah, he's really, he's really someone, something. He hitched a ride with a man named James Galleon to the head of Stampede Trail, which is three hours outside of Fairbanks on the edge of Denali National Park. James, who also happened to be a very proficient outdoorsman, noted that Chris was carrying very meager provisions for his proposed three-month stay in the Alaskan wilderness. He estimated that his backpack only seemed to be about 25 to 30 pounds. He had no navigational equipment, a 10-pound bag of rice, a semi-automatic 22 caliber rifle, and several paperback books, ranging from local plant guides to Michael Crichton and Tolstoy. He had his little library in his backpack. James actually did try to talk him out of his plan, but he was determined. Um, that was something a lot of people said about Chris. Once he put his n- mind to something, you couldn't sway it him. It didn't sound like s- no. he was going to be talked
1: out of anything. No,
0: not at all. Uh, he even offered to drive up to Anchorage and buy him some more gear and supplies, but Chris refused. Um, he told him that he wouldn't run into anything he couldn't deal with on his own. He did at least accept a sandwich and a pair of boots from James. So Okay. <laughs> so He's, he's like... Let me at least give you my but sandwich. But I'll take that sandwich.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So they arrived at Sampy Trail. Chris got out of the truck. He asked James to take a photo of him. And he set off. The date was Tuesday, April 28th, 1992. And it was the last time Chris would ever be seen alive. Now, on his Alaskan odyssey, his Great Alaskan odyssey, as he called it, he started recording his journey on the back of his uh, plant guide. From this point on, everything we know is coming from Chris's journal. On the 29th, he fell through some ice <laughs> while crossing some frozen water. Um, oh boy. Krakauer suggested this could have been the, I think it's Teklanika River, oh, uh, or a beaver pond. But he was unharmed. Uh, the entry in his diary says, fall through ice day. <laughs> <laughs> day four is when he discovers Fairbanks 142, which is that bus I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, The entry for that day says Magic Bus Day in his journal. Fairbanks 142 already kind of had its own history. It was originally a school bus, later Mm -hmm. turned public transit shuttle, before it was uh, gutted and repurposed and then hauled out into the wilderness to support a construction crew that was building a mining access road there. (laughs) Okay. Here's a bus for you guys to hang out in.
1: It was like a makeshift shelter? Kind of,
0: yeah. The project was abandoned and they just left the bus there. So. It's kind of, it's like a little landmark to locals, people know about it. And Chris found it and he established it as his primary shelter. The next few days from what we can glean from his uh, what we can glean from his journal, we see that he's struggling struggling a little bit. He has some difficulty catching game. Day 9's entry just says weakness and day 11 says disaster. Day 12 says fourth day famine. So he's having a little rough time. So you can still find his journal online. Um, I'm looking at a picture of it that comes from a website called (laughs) friendsofbus142.com. And they have uh, a picture of his journal and all the entries in it that you can look at. Day 14 just says misery. (laughs) Um, A lot of the entries just have to do with like game that he's seen, uh, game that he's caught or, you know, animals that he's seen. In May is around the time that the snowpack started melting and it was revealing berries and edible plants that had been preserved by the cold. So Chris is catching a break a little bit. Mm. He also became more proficient in hunting, and he was able to pretty regularly catch and eat game, such as squirrel, grouse, duck, goose, and even porcupine. Are bears
1: waking up in May? They are. A little bit earlier, (laughs) saw
0: He saw uh, a couple bears that he writes in his journal. A couple bear. He lost a crown from his tooth at some point. (laughs) He shot a caribou, which he mistakenly referred to as a moose. Chris, what are you talking about? <laughs> These are two distinct animals. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Yeah. It's whatever. Um, he tried for almost a week to preserve the meat. Uh, he buried what he couldn't eat right away in a hole that he dug, and he made a smoker to try to keep bugs away, but it was...
1: It's a lot of food. Yeah
0: yeah it was and unfortunately he was not able to preserve almost any of it maggots had appeared on the course uh, on the corpse and the meat was inedible at that point mm. in his entry for day 48 he writes maggots already smoking appears ineffective don't know looks like disaster i now wish i had never shot the moose Aww. one of the greatest tragedies of my life yeah chris he was he uh, something that he was really adamant about was not wasting yeah. when it came to hunting so yeah that was it was a big bummer for well, him it does return
1: to nature though yeah something ate it
0: yeah so. there's a lot of because he, he was taking pictures throughout this um, and there's a lot of pictures of him like next to game that he killed and he's mm-hmm. smiling but i don't think it's meant as like a yeah i'm a killer kind of smile i think it's just you know
1: i get to eat
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly now he was ready to leave the wild after surviving for two months on his own out of the wild yeah. <laughs> he was like all right cool job done On July 3rd, which is day 66 in the journal, he began a 30-mile hike back towards the road. Two days into the trip, he comes across the Teclonica River. He had originally crossed this river when it was frozen, but now the ice was melted, and recent rainfall had caused the river to swell. If Chris wanted to cross it, he would have to cross 75 feet of frigid, chest-deep water with a very powerful current. He realizes if he tries, he's going to drown.
1: Not ideal. No.
0: So he's forced to turn back and return to the bus. Uh, In day 69 of his journal, he writes, "Rained in, river looks impossible, lonely, scared. Oh, no. That's really sad, I know. What Chris didn't know was that only a quarter mile downstream was a designated crossing point for this river. Six miles south of his bus was also a cabin that was maintained by the National Park Service, and it was stocked with food, bedding, first aid supplies, this was all for backcountry rangers um, who were out there during the winter. Which sounds really, you know, obviously it's really unfortunate, especially the river crossing, because he definitely, I think, would have taken advantage of that. Mm -hmm. But the cabin, people afterwards have said, his friends have been like, I think if he knew that cabin was there, he would have moved further away. Because it it meant that he was... cheating. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, For the next three weeks, he continued to successfully hunt and forage. The problem is, however, he was mostly eating squirrel, spruce grouse, small birds, and frogs, which are all very lean. Yep. And the calories he was expending to hunt and forage were significantly more than what he was consuming. So he was in a pretty extreme calori- uh, caloric deficit, and he was losing weight very quickly. Even though his situation is already not looking that great because of you know the uh, calorie situation... It seems like his real fatal error happened uh, at the end of July. Now, in his original article, Krakauer originally posited that Chris had eaten the poisonous seeds of a wild pea plant after he had mistaken it for a wild potato plant, which he had been eating at that point. And his subsequent illness that he mentions in his journal was caused by this mistake. However, in Into the Wild, which he wrote after the article he suggests that a toxic alkaloid in the wild potato seeds led to Chris's sudden decline and eventual starvation and death. Hmm. He changed his theory because the very book that Chris wrote his journal in was a plant field guide warning about mixing up these two specific plants and gives you sure. pointers on how to distinguish them. So he, he's like, I don't think you know, Chris would make that mistake. He had the information literally in his hands. Recently, though, It's been suggested that a neurotoxin known as ODAP, don't ask me what it stands for, it's a long string of science stuff, Mm. uh, which is found in wild potato seeds and can lead to permanent paralysis of the legs, is the true culprit. The
1: potatoes were their own seeds.
0: I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard of a potato seed. I haven't (laughs) eaten. <laughs> I thought that was weird, but maybe it's they a different kind of potato. Sh- throw off shoots. Maybe it's a different kind of potato. Whatever those Alaskan potatoes have going on. Um,
1: yeah, I guess they are in Alaska.
0: They are in Alaska. Uh, now, this last theory comes about from someone who wasn't a chemist. Uh, I don't remember his name. I think his last name is Hamilton. But he had read Chris's story and read his mm-hmm. journal, and he was like, this sounds very similar to something... That he had read or heard about, which is this obscure story of a concentration camp in which prisoners there were given uh, bread made with a plant that also contained ODAP, and mm. their symptoms afterwards sound very similar to Chris's, according to a doctor Fernand Lambine or Lambine, a scientist who works with the cassava cyanide diseases and neuroletherism network. <laughs> Uh, He says that individuals who are malnourished, stressed, and suffering from acute hunger are more susceptible to the uh, paralyzing effects of the toxin. So, could have been what happened. Uh, His journal entry for day 94, Chris, it reads, Extremely weak. Fault of potato seed. Much trouble just to stand up. Starving. Great jeopardy. Day 100 is marked with a triumphant... Day 100 made it! It's all in big capital letters, and Day 100 is like a box around it. Uh, But it's a stark contrast, unfortunately, to the rest of the entry that reads, But in weakest condition of life, death looms as serious threat. Too weak to walk out, have literally become trapped in the wild. The next few entries from Day 101 to 103, they're just marked through with a slash, which he normally did to indicate that nothing really happened that day. Day one oh four says missed bear with an exclamation point. One oh five missed says, like
1: he took a shot at it.
0: I don't know. If, I don't know. <laughs> That's what I was kind of wondering. Missed like he missed it with his gun or missed like whoa I just missed him.
1: Or he's longing for it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> missed bear. Uh, day one oh five he notes that he caught five squirrel that day. Um, it's also there's caribou written with an asterisk next to it, which I think just means uh, he saw one. Day 106 is something that I don't know what it is. It's P-T-A-R-M-I-G-A-N. Ptarmigan. I think it's a type of bird. I'm not certain. Hmm. Sounds like it. It sounds like it. Day 107 uh, is the last written entry in his journal, and it just says, Beautiful blueberries. Days 108 through 112 are all marked through with a slash. Day 113, the number is written, but it is completely empty. The last of Chris's writings is a note written on the back of a book page, which included a poem by uh, Robinson Jeffers. And it reads, Death's a fierce meadowlark, but to die having made something more equal to the centuries than muscle and bone is mostly to shed weakness. That's from the poem Wise Men in Their Bad Hours, which is very appropriate for the situation, I think. The note that Chris wrote said, I have had a happy life and thank the Lord. Goodbye and may God bless all. Oh man. I know. He took one final photograph of himself holding the note. He's facing the camera. He's smiling. He has his hand up like he's waving. He's in a brown jacket and scarf. His hair is unkempt and blowing in the wind. <laughs> his, his face is unshaven.
1: Almost like he's been in the wild for <laughs> 113 days. <laughs> yeah.
0: Behind him is this vibrant green tree line of beautiful pine trees. At some point after that, he laid down in his sleeping bag, which Billy had made for him, and he would succumb to starvation. Likely on August 18, 1992, he would be found just 19 days later. Chris McCandless had survived 113 days on his own in the Alaskan wilderness. That's about 16 weeks, and all that led to what I talked, what I, the incident I mentioned at the beginning, with the moose hunters mm-hmm. finding him in there. After he was found, Alaska state troopers were notified about the body. Uh, and he was evacuated via police helicopter. His probable probable cause of death was starvation. His journal and undeveloped photographs were all recovered, but he didn't carry any ID on him, so authorities had no way to identify him. It was actually Wayne who would be the one to identify him. Really? He received a radio call while he was out trucking, uh, <laughs> and it was someone else who said, you know, uh, turn on Paul Harvey. He's talking about a kid that they found who starved to death up in Alaska. He says it sounds an awful lot like Alex. So Wayne was like, I think it might have been him. He, because Chris had worked for him, Wayne had an old W-4 form from him that had his social security number on it. He got in contact with authorities, gave them the social security number, gave him his info, said, yes, I think this is him. Uh, the social security number led authorities to his parents' residence in Virginia, and it was an Alaskan police sergeant who was the one to give Walt and Billy the call. Corinne's perspective of this moment absolutely shatters me in the book because she's told, and one of the things that she said, for one, she just kind of like goes nuts with grief and is completely just like, no, 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 no. And one of the things that she says is, what am I supposed to do now? And that I'm like tearing up. Mm. <laughs> because she, it was like... Yeah, Chris wasn't there for, like, the past two years, but she knew he was out there. Yeah. And uh, just the fact that it's, like, well, what am I supposed to do now without oh, yeah, him? And that was,
1: like, the one stabilizing force in her life. hmm
0: exactly. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> and vice versa. Yeah,
0: exactly. So that really, just, like, oh, my God. Because I can relate to that. You know, it's, like, when Dad died, it felt like, it, it was, like, you know, how do, what do I do now? I've had this thing in my life for mm-hmm. so long. What am I supposed to do without it? Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, I, when I tell people, it's like losing a leg. You're so used to this thing being there, and suddenly it's not. What do you do now? Right. That's what it felt like. So I can, I can 100% understand the grief she was feeling in that moment, and it just, like, destroyed me because I was like, what if that was you? What if that was Anthony?
1: Well, I'm not going out into the Alaskan <laughs> wilderness anytime soon. I hope not.
0: Uh, Chris. So I hope. I also hope not. <laughs> Just saying. Chris's body was returned to his family. Um, his funeral was held. His body was cremated. His ashes were scattered in Chesapeake Bay. This is something that Corrine really took an issue with, actually, because Chris was known to have a fear of deep water. Billy's response... I wonder who made that call. Yeah. Uh, and Billy's response to Corrine when she raises this point is pretty shocking. Because Corrine is like, Mom, what are you doing? Chris... Was afraid of deep water while you're spreading his ashes in the Chesapeake Bay, mm-hmm. and Billy looks at her and says, "This isn't about Chris. This is about us and wanting to be close to oh,
1: him." Oh, good God!
0: I had to walk away oh, from my screen God. when I read that. I out loud was like, "Oh my God! You're spreading his ashes, and you're saying it's not about him." Ah, uh, it. Yeah. Well, my I mean, dropped. <laughs>
1: Just you know, classic narcissist. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's not about him. It's about come us. to expect,
1: come to expect, expect less from people.
0: Exactly. So after, you know, Chris's story kind of started to circulate. This young guy from this pretty affluent family travels into the wilderness, dies um, after surviving, you know, two years on his own, making it on his own as this in this drifter lifestyle. Um, outside magazine picks up on it and they contact one of their editors, John Krakauer, who I've been mentioning. Hmm. They ask him to write an article about Chris, uh, which he does. He retrace, basically retraces Chris's steps, goes and meets the people that he met, you know, Wayne, Jan. Um, he
1: really did his uh, due diligence. He did,
0: yeah. Um, I imagine he,
1: it's easy to track somebody like that down. Yeah, you know?
0: exactly. I'm, I am don't know how he found these people, but he did a really great job. Um, and he... Uh, after collecting all his research, talking with the family, to interviewing the family, he wrote an article for Outside Magazine titled Death of an Innocent. It was published in 1993, really popularized the story, but even though you know the article had been published, done with Krakauer, was not done with Chris. He was enthralled by his story, and he wanted to go even deeper. So he continued with the research, with the interviews, and that eventually led to him publishing Into the Wild, which is all about Chris's life story with some things omitted, again, at Corrine's request. Uh, and then in 2007, the uh, book was adapted into a film directed and produced by Sean Penn. It stars Emile Hirsch as uh, Chris and Jenna Malone, Jenna Malone as Corrine. And Corrine is actually the one narrating the film, which was a really great touch, because she was always the one who was closest to him, so it makes sense that she was the one who got to tell it. Um... Not the real Korean Jenna Malone, the actress is narrating, but she's (sighs) it's her perspective. You know what I mean. Along with Into the Wild, Billy and Walt also published their own book.
1: (laughs) Color me shocked. It was
0: called Return to the Wild. Um, God. mm -hmm. And it was really they actually published it like under Chris's name, as if to say like. The, cu- the title says, by Chris McCandler. Yeah, Again, color me shock. Yeah, telling his story for them when th- that would not at all be what he wanted.
1: And then directly profiting off of it exactly. also. Exactly, yeah. It's like, how f- fucking gross can you that's, get?
0: Yeah, it's terrible. And after this, you know, everything that they were saying, you know, how could he do this to us? We still love him despite all the pain that yeah, he's put us through. Yeah, he did this through. to us. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's what really prompted Kareen to... Write her book, mm. which is called The Wild Truth, um, which was published in, again, I think it was 2013. I bought it, I read it. It is incredible. I really encourage you to go and read it. There are so many things that I uh, just skimmed on because there's so much in that book. And if you want to read more about it, about, you know, Chris and their family, I really encourage you to go out and buy it. It was support like.
1: Support your local library.
0: Yeah, you should. And where I bought it from was really cheap. It was like 15 bucks or something. But yeah, support a library. Get a library card. Um, so she published the Wild Truth, and this was after years of attempting to reconcile with her parents and try to get them to see the error of their ways. And there are some, you know, other things in this book that I that she mentions that I didn't talk about um, that really, really drive home just how how much Walt and Billy should not have been married, let alone parents.
1: Well, it sounds like they deserve each other. It's just unfortunate that they had to inflict that on on their kids also.
0: Exactly. And here's the thing. I do believe that Walt and Billy loved Chris in their way. In the only way that I think two very selfish, absorbed people can love Mm. something else. And I think that it did very much ruin them when he died. But I think that the way they are treating the loss... And it's I'm, hard
1: to find sympathy. It's like. very hard,
0: yeah. And I, it's not, you know, my, you can never tell someone how to grieve or how to react after someone, you know, especially a child of theirs, dies. No, but you but can't tell
1: me that I have to have sympathy for somebody either. Yeah,
0: exactly. It's just, it's very hard to, yeah, feel sorry for them after everything. Um, none of their children have any kind of contact with them anymore mm. either. They're all no contact, including their grandchildren. So they do not know their grandparents, which also just sucks for them to not have not to get to know their family like that. But again, this is the bed that Walt and Billy made, and they are lying with it. Lying in it. Um, after Corrine published her book, they came out with a response that said, uh, it's all a work of fiction, and none of it is true. Jesus She's God. writing this, you know, to slander then and you know make a mockery of Chris's memory whatever whatever why, why blah, would i blah, slander blah.
1: two randos why
0: would i you know in, you know years after everything after everything it's 2013 mm-hmm. all this happened in 1992 if there was any profit to be had she would have done it then she was a grown woman then but just the way that she writes about you know what they say and the letters that um i mentioned that she has from Chris those are all real. She has them. She reads them out um, in a documentary I watched with her, too. So this all very much happened. And again, she told John Krakauer all this stuff way back. And she said, please just don't include it in your book. Uh-huh. Why would, you know, she's like, I want you to have the full picture, but I don't want this to, you know, ha- have any blowback on my parents. Why would she do that if if it was all fake? Why would she, what kind of long con was she playing? <laughs> so I believe Corrine And I think that she's a really fantastic person. She continues to, um, I think that she does like talks and stuff about her brother and her experience afterwards. Uh, She has a Ted talk where she discusses how DNA isn't what makes family. um, Because obviously her experience with her parents and also it was her third marriage, I believe Um, her husband had had a daughter that he didn't know about. And, she came to live with them when she was about two years old. And Corrine really took her on as a daughter because her mother was very absent in her life. Mm. And Corrine just adored her and gave her everything, treated her as her blood daughter from day one. So family is, you know, yeah,
1: shout out to all the healthy parental figures them, out
0: there. For real. And, uh, Heather was, um, Corrine's first child, obviously not by blood. Um, her and her husband, I think his name is Richard? Question mark. Um, <laughs> they did end up finally. Sorry, Dick. Sorry, Dick. Um, they did through IVF, and again had suffered a miscarriage. Mm. They did end up having a child, a rainbow baby, it was a little girl, and they named her Christiana after Chris. Aww. I know. Now, as for the bus, Fairbanks One Forty Two, pretty much just stayed in the same place for a while. Uh, A lot of people who had been touched by Chris's story would make their own treks out there to pay respects. Um, There's, like, notes written all over the bus uh, dedicated to Chris or about him. Um, uh, One source said that it kind of became, like, a reliquary, basically, Mm -hmm. because all of his stuff was still there, pretty preserved, um, and people had just left it. And so it, it was kind of like, you know, this almost pilgrimage kind of sure. for these hikers to go there and visit it and, i'd
1: imagine that the the fact that it is so out of the way I, I mean first of all just being up in alaska and then in the wilderness kind of yeah. lends to the fact that like people were willing to leave it sacred yeah if that were like somewhere out here mm. all that shit would be ransacked it would <laughs> yeah. just be like a morbid tourist curiosity exactly. it would be totally yeah just stripped of, of all of its its meaning
0: mm-hmm now, unfortunately, the bus was removed in June 2020 due to, sadly, a number of deaths, injuries, and recoveries that were happening um, by, you know, maybe more ex- inexperienced hikers mm-hmm. or you know, less prepared hikers traveling out there because it is rugged terrain. No. It's oh, that's rough. an issue,
1: too. You can't have all kinds of people just trying to go, yeah. like tourists essentially trying to go out there.
0: Right. So that's uh, one reason why some people have a lot of issue with Chris and this, like, one article said that he's been like canonized basically Mm -hmm. by hikers and outdoorsmen um but a lot of people are mad because they're like you shouldn't want to emanate him what he did wasn't you know was kind of stupid of him so people kind of have mixed feelings about him and i'll talk about that too in a second
1: um it's important to prepare if you're going outdoors it
0: is but alaska bring water water absolutely something a compass compass a map flares something Mm -hmm. to alert some people if you need help
1: let people know where you are where you'll be Mm and when they should expect you
0: back exactly exactly always 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 tell people where you're going and when you'll be back always uh alaska state troopers reported that 75 percent of rescues in the in that area happened on the stampede trail so that should give you some idea Hmm. Now, Chris, after all these years, is still a very polarizing figure. Um, obviously, much earlier on, before we had the context of his home life, people thought that it was just very selfish of him, that he was just this spoiled, you know, young, rich guy who was just testing his luck out on the road. I To me, Chris is complex. I, have a, I do have a lot of admiration for him because I think that he embodies this kind of desire that everyone has to want to have this you know rootless not rootless not everyone likes that but I think that rootless you know lifestyle very Spartan lifestyle is really attractive to a lot of people
1: I think it's also bit like you know just living the life that you want to live in yeah. and yeah it you're not hurting anybody else exactly so
0: he had the power to go where he wanted do uh, what he wanted and he was super which happy everybody should it. strive for you yeah. should
1: always you know live the life that you want to live as mm-hmm. long as you're not inflicting it on, on somebody no, else.
0: Don't hurt him. As long as you're not hurting anybody else, uh-huh. you're doing good. And I, uh, yeah. So again, some people have like deified him basically been like, you know, Oh, Krishna canless. A lot of people take issue with the fact that the book and the movie have kind of romanticized him and this whole incident haters, haters. <laughs> um, Do I think it was kind of irresponsible of Chris? Yes, absolutely. Um, There were several points where people did offer him, you know, supplies or anything, and he refused. Yeah,
1: that's what he wanted to do, though. That is what he
0: wanted to do. But, counterpoint, (laughs) I think, you know, his his whole desire to live based on only what he could do, what he could acquire, Mm -hmm. I would argue that these relationships he made and being able to benefit from those by having people give him stuff would be part of that. But yeah, Chris is still a very controversial figure. I. Personally, I don't think that he's, like, this kook that people... You know, this incompetent young kid He's definitely not incompetent. No, not at all.
1: That's one thing that you can't say about the guy.
0: No, not at all. Um, But, yeah, I think he's very complex, and you can't just think one thing about him. Whether, you know, he's a... Oh, he's a hero, or, oh, he's just this...
1: I wouldn't go that far, (laughs) He's a vagabond. No,
0: yeah. Um, But... I
1: mean, at the end of the day, yeah, he's just a vagabond.
0: Yeah, he's just a guy. But definitely... Reading Corrine's book, I did feel a lot of sympathy. Or not, well, what's the word? I understood, I felt that connection to Chris as him being an older brother. Mm. But yeah, just hearing how she described it is the same way that I would describe you, where it's like, you know, one of the people that she's closest to, her superhero growing up, her favorite mm. person. I would describe you with all Aww, of that. Oh, thank you. I love you. Um, so it was, you know, reading her book was really that's why it was such a kind of a difficult experience sometimes because yeah i could just i could feel it you know we're the same age Mm -hmm. gap and it's the same kind of situation where she grew up just always wanted to be around her older brother her big brother so you're obviously entitled to think whatever you want of (laughs) chris if you listen to this and you were like ah fuck him sure that's fine (laughs) (laughs) that's your opinion go nuts
1: You can't say it's not an interesting story. No,
0: not at all. And you cannot say that he was not an interesting guy. Um, Definitely, very much. He was. He was a character. We should all
1: strive to be interesting.
0: We should. Um, Just to close this out. Or boring.
1: If you want to be boring, do what you want. Do
0: whatever you want. Again, as long as you're bringing harm to nobody, Mm -hmm. do what you want. But I do want to close this out by uh, including the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Um, if there is anyone out there listening who is in a you know unsafe situation or a similar situation going through some kind of abuse violence at home know that you are not alone and there are people out there willing to help there are resources to help get you out of there Um, you can call 1-800-799-SAFE that full number is 1-800-799-7233 that's what safe is So again, 1-800-799-7233. You can also text START to 88788. The website itself is available in Spanish, and it has a ton of resources, stuff like how to start a conversation with someone you know who's in a bad situation, uh, safety planning, identifying signs of abuse, identifying warning signs, info on local resources, uh, services for indigenous people, services for deaf people, Um, The site also has a quick exit feature where you can click on a button that will clear the tab, or you can hit the escape key twice and it clears the tab. Uh, It also advises you to clear your browser history after visiting and to directly call the helpline via phone if you are concerned your internet activity is being monitored. So, again, I'll give you that number. This is the National Domestic Violence Hotline. You can call 1-800-799-7233 or text START to 88788. And again if you are in this type of situation know that you're loved there are people out here willing to help you and people out here who want to help that was the uh that was the very interesting story of Christopher McCandless it was. Um,
1: I'm glad that I was here to uh, to hear it why did you I'd never to? heard of him before really
0: mm-hmm. Ooh, i know i thought i think that most people um have heard of him through into the wild because like i said it's part of a uh, reading curriculum for some schools but yeah
1: Oh, again. One fish, two fish. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, again, I'll see you guys uh, not next week, but the week after. And I think it might be another Man Eater episode. We'll She's see mm-hmm. I don't want to get... I, shouldn't, I don't want to get <laughs> DMCA. I'll <down. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> we'll have to
1: throw on, like, some royalty-free uh, some backtrack to it. <laughs> totally out of tune I
0: promise I was not singing Nelly Furtado's Man Eater <laughs> Anyway have a great night everybody in Gaia we trust goodbye Bye.